Good morning. Well, after I spoke to you last week, I received a number of comments. Some people said they really liked it, so I was encouraged by that. But some people said they really didn't like it. So to try to respond to that, I invested in a beard trimmer. I think it looks a lot tidier now, and I hope you agree. So now I just have to decide what to do about how long my hair is getting. Your comments are most welcome on that as well. You can probably imagine the hairstyle that James Tweets recommended, but I don't think we'll be going there quite yet. Anyway, what I want to talk about this morning is something called the image of God. Or if you want to sound posh, you can call it the imago dei, which is what theologians call it, the image of God in Latin. And the image of God is one of the core themes that runs all the way through the Bible from beginning to end. It's kind of like the writing running through a stick of seaside rock along with concepts such as the temple, the covenant, and the kingdom. Or you could say it's like a plaited cord or a braided cord with these themes like different coloured strands woven together. But the image of God is not something that we tend to talk about very often, despite it being so incredibly important. So I hope that by the time we finish this morning, you'll see why it is so important and you'll be as excited about it as I am. So let's start with Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, which is where we first come across it. And here we need to start by reminding ourselves that Genesis is a theological account of creation, not a cosmological account. In other words, Genesis was not written to explain how the world was made, but why it was made and who made it. It was written to tell us who God is and who we are and how God relates to us and how we relate to him. It's about relationship, not manufacture. And the Hebrew word for made or created, is never used in the Bible in a manufacturing sense. It's only ever used in a bringing it about sense. So Psalm 51.10, for example, create in me a clean heart, O God. That's the same word. But of course, it's not asking God to do a heart transplant, but a heart transformation. Genesis is telling us theological truths, not scientific truths or biological truths. Genesis has all of the right answers, but only if we're asking it the right questions. And the reason that we tend to ask it the wrong questions is because we live in an age of science. But we have to remember that we are not defending the Bible if we're defending the wrong things. So let's start with the classic passage that kind of sets the scene for everything that we want to be talking about this morning, and that's Genesis 1, 26 to 27. This comes at the very end of the creation story after God has created everything else. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. 
So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then verse 31. After each day of creating, the first five days, each time it says God saw that it was good. But then at the end of day six, after he'd made people, it says God saw everything he had made and it was very good. And you know, God still sees things that way despite the stuff that's gone wrong since then. And that's why he believes that it's worth saving and we are worth saving and not just giving up on. Now occasionally you may hear someone say that in what we call the fall, humanity lost the image of God. But that is wrong. Genesis 9 says the reason that we shouldn't kill another human being is because we are made in the image of God. What we can say though is that the image of God in humanity has become stained and torn and dirty. A bit like an oil painting with layers of grime and dirt that have accumulated over time that needs restoration. So the image and the portrait can still be seen, but it's not as clear and as sharp and as beautiful as it was intended to be, as the artist originally painted it. So it needs rescuing or saving. And that, of course, is what happened through Jesus, which we'll have a look at a bit later. So what we see in the order of creation, in the way that the narrative is put together, is that humanity is the high point of God's creation. Only we are created in God's image and likeness. So we have special status. And of course, with that special status comes a special responsibility to be the image of God in this world. So what I want to look at this morning is the implications for being the image of God for us as Christians. Because as the people of God, we are called to be the image of God. We are called to be image bearers. In what we are like, people should be able to see what God is like. Now, if we look at the famous Ten Commandments, you may know that the first commandment is that you shall have no other gods but me. But then the second commandment is this one. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. The New Testament Greek word for image is icon, E-I-K-O-N, from which we get our word icon, I-C-O-N. And the reason that God says don't make an image is because we are his image. In the ancient world, people made images of their gods and they put them in their places of worship because they believed that the idols carried with them the presence of God, that the essence of the God was there in the idol. But our God says, don't you do that, because you're here to carry the presence of God. The essence of God is in you. 
You are here to be my image, not bits of wood or stone. So the first implication of what it means for us to be the image of God is something that we've already read about in Genesis a moment ago, but may have passed you by at the time. So let's have a look at that again. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then similarly in Genesis chapter 5, when God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them humankind when they were created. What we see in these passages is that men and women together are the image of God. Only men and women together are the image of God singular. Now please do not read this as saying that only married couples are the image of God. What it's saying is that wherever and whenever women are excluded and left out and marginalised, as men in the church have done so disgracefully over the years, whenever that happens, we are not seeing the image of God fully present. When men treat women as inferior and they have no voice, we are falling short of the image of God and failing to fully represent who God is and what God is like. As men or women alone, we only have part of the image. It's men and women together who are the image of God. So men are not the image of God on their own and nor are women the image of God on their own. Unless we have women's voices and women's contributions equally as much as men's, then we're falling short of God's image. We're falling short in how we think about God and what it means to be human and how we make decisions because we've left out of it part of the image of God. We're no longer fully reflecting who God is and what it means to be God's image for this world. And what this is also telling us is that God is not biologically male. Much as it might suit some men to think that, the Bible is not telling us that. God made us in his image. We men shouldn't make him into our image. As one theologian said, if God is male, then the male is God, which is very much not the case. Any man ought to know that. So sexism has to go. The second implication of what it means for us to be God's image is that as human beings, we are all part of one family. We all share the same human parents, Adam and Eve. So when we talk about being brothers and sisters, that's not just nice metaphorical language. Just reflect for a moment, if you would, on 
how we tend to think about our own family compared to how we think about people who are not in our family. And you can immediately see what a difference it makes how we conceive it. Just think about how you would do anything for someone in your family. How you would share what you have with them and give to them and put their interests above your own. It's interesting that when Luke begins his story of Jesus' life and ministry at the end of Luke chapter 3, he traces Jesus' family tree all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so, of course, do we. There was no detour in humanity along the way. All of us, whether we're black or white or brown or sky blue pink, we are all part of the same family because we all share the same parents. In Ephesians 3, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. We share the same surname. We share the same image of God. And that image of God is passed down through the generations. It didn't stop with Adam and Eve. It wasn't lost at the fall. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, just after, it says how men and women are made in the image and likeness of God. The verse we read a moment ago, it says this, After Adam had lived for 130 years, he became the father of a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. And this is making a theological statement. It's not just saying that Seth looked a bit like his dad. Something else for us to think about is that even though just about every picture you ever see of Jesus and every movie about Jesus, it shows him as white-skinned with baby blue eyes and probably an English public school accent. But the reality is that Jesus was from the Middle East. He was North African in appearance and in cultural origins. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly where the Garden of Eden was, but a best guess would be near the borders of eastern Sudan, Ethiopia and Eritrea. The scientists also tell us that the human race began in Africa. The oldest skeleton was found in Ethiopia in 1974 and the archaeologist who, who found it called her Lucy. A bit of a shame that they didn't give her an African name, don't you think? Anyway, so the second implication of what it means for us to be the image of God is similar to that first implication. Not only are men and women the image of God together, the image of God singular, so too people of every colour and culture and ethnicity are the image of God together, the image of God singular. So wherever and whenever people of any colour or culture or ethnicity are excluded and left out and marginalised, whenever that happens, we are not seeing the image of God fully present. 
Unless we have equal voices and equal contributions from all races and cultures, fully and completely involved in what's happening, then we are collectively falling short of the image of God. Which of course also means that we're falling short of being the body of Christ as the church. We're falling short in how we think about God and what it means to be human and what it means to be church because we've left out part of God's image. We're no longer fully reflecting who God is and what it means to be God's image for this world. If I can adapt that quote that I mentioned earlier from that theologian who said, if God is male, then the male is God. If we see God as white, if we see Jesus as white, then it's only a very small step to be seeing the white man as God, which is very obviously not the case. Although for too much of recent history, to our shame, we have acted like it, which the world at last is beginning to realise. So if we are to be the image of God, not only does sexism have to go, so too does racism. And then the third implication from what we've been saying about the image of God is that every single one of us is and has the capacity to be an image bearer. All of us together from whatever background we come, whatever our circumstances are, we all share the image of God. Only when we are all included, only when you are included, do we together fully reflect God's image. Every single one of us is made in the image of God. Whether we're male or female, black or white, gay or straight, rich or poor, old or young, able or disabled. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made, as Psalm 139 tells us. And you know, this is a a very important point because Sometimes people who are in one of those categories can feel or can be made to feel that they're not quite made in God's image or they're not quite fearfully and wonderfully made or they're not quite fully part of the body of Christ because they're a woman or they're black or they're gay or they're poor or they're old or they're disabled. And especially that can be a problem in churches like ours that believe in praying for healing. You can unwittingly be made to feel like you are an unfinished project. You know, when people say that everyone is welcome to come as you are, sometimes they will add to that, but don't stay that way. And that can make it sound like the clock is ticking on how long you are welcome to come as you are before you are expected to change. But that is not what it means. And it's not for us in the church to define or dictate what change looks like in someone's life. What it means is that we believe in a transforming God 
who wants to supernaturally transform all of our lives. But what exactly that transformation might look like is between each of us and God. So we focus on the welcome and we let him focus on the transformation. So I want to close by going back to a couple of things that we said at the start. The first is that we said the image of God is one of the core themes running throughout the Bible from beginning to end, like that writing running through a stick of seaside rock. And then the second is when we talked about the image of God in humanity being like an oil painting, that the image of God is still there, but it's got layers of grime and dirt that have become accumulated over time. So it needs restoration. That image can still be seen, but it's not as clear and as sharp and as beautiful as it was intended to be, as the artist originally painted it. So it needs rescuing or saving. And all of that, of course, is what happened with the coming of Jesus, where the image of God that we first read about in Genesis comes back to centre stage. One of the 4th century church fathers, Athanasius, here he is with a nice beard, he famously said this, you know what happens when a portrait that's been painted on a panel becomes obliterated through external stains. The artist doesn't throw away the panel, but the subject of the portrait has to come and sit for it again and the likeness is redrawn on the same material. Even so it was with the all-holy Son of God. He, the image of the Father, came and dwelt in our midst in order that he might renew humankind made after himself. And there's a few scriptures that Athanasius is drawing from when he explains it like that. The New Testament talks about Jesus as the second Adam. In other words, that in Jesus, God is recreating and renewing what it looks like to be human. Jesus is inviting us to join him in a new way of being human, which is literally what being born again means. It's like the portrait of your life being repainted in Jesus according to the original pattern, the image of God being fully restored. In Colossians 1.15, it says that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So our destiny is to join him in being and becoming increasingly the full and complete visible image of the invisible God in this world remade and restored to the original design and the original pattern through Jesus. With all of those features that we've been looking at this morning of what it means for us to be the full and complete image of God. In 2 Corinthians 3, we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Ever-increasing transformation 
to be ever increasingly like the image of God in everything that we do and say and how we do church and how we treat people and how we include people. That is our destiny and our calling. And in Romans 8, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Our destiny as God's family is to be the image of God in this world. And that has implications for how we understand and do our Christianity and what it means to be Christian. So let me leave you with one final reminder of those three implications of us being made in God's image and for our Christianity being made in God's image. As the people of God, we are called to be the image of God. We are called to be image bearers. In what we are like, people should be able to see what God is like. And the first implication of what it means to be God's image is that men and women together are the image of God. As men or women alone, we only have part of that image. Unless we have women's voices and women's contributions equally as much as men's, then we are falling short of God's image. We're no longer fully reflecting who God is and what it means to be his image in this world. So sexism has to go. The second implication of what it means for us to be the image of God is that as human beings we are all part of one family because we share the same human parents. So wherever and whenever people of any colour or culture or ethnicity are excluded and left out and marginalised, whenever that is happening, we are not seeing the image of God fully present. Unless we have equal voices and equal contributions from all races and cultures, fully and completely involved, then we are falling short of God's image. Which, of course, also means that we're falling short of being the body of Christ as the church. And then the third implication from what we've been saying is that every single one of us is and has the capacity to be an image bearer. All of us together, from whatever background we come, whatever our circumstances are, we all share in the image of God. So only when we are all equally included, only when you are included, do we together fully reflect God's image. So every single one of us is made in the image of God. Whether we are male or female, black or white, gay or straight, rich or poor, old or young, able or disabled. We mentioned in the weekly email this week, Revelation 7-9, a verse that is describing heaven. 
And we know from the Lord's Prayer that we are called to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So whenever we see heaven pictured in the Bible, it's describing what we should want and we should pray for and we should do all that we can to bring about for things to be like on earth now as a kind of foretaste or first fruits of what the future kingdom is going to be like. We should start practicing for it now. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And the New Testament Greek word for nations is ethnos from which we get our words ethnic and ethnicity. God's kingdom includes every ethnicity and it includes every people group. People who speak every language, standing equally before the throne and worshipping together. And so too, therefore, should God's church.